Good evening and welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very good, Michael. How are you doing? How are you thinking about, you know, Tisky now on Friday nights, me and you, we've done so well, but now the good weather's here, I'm worried all our wonderful followers are going to leave us. Well, I'm worried about myself, you know. There's never been a moment where I've been like, I'd love to be doing something else this evening, but now the sun's coming out, the days are getting longer. Obviously, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm not going to go anywhere. I can do that on, on the other days of the week, but and I hope you guys do the same. However hot it is, this is the place to be on a Friday night. You can always go out afterwards. And tonight's show is particularly unmissable. Um, we are talking about the fallout from Dominic Cummings' testimony to a Commons Select Committee, especially as it refers to Matt Hancock. He is currently... Well, I say he's fighting for his job. In fact, actually, quite a lot of Tory MPs and the Prime Minister are rallying around him. So he probably will keep it. But we can look at the row that that has generated and to what extent the, the issues it raises could damage the government. Um, more important than Matt Hancock, though, I, I do think is is that the, the questions that it raised about Boris Johnson. We'll talk a bit about those and what I think actually the mainstream media is ignoring when it comes to the significance of what Dominic Cummings said. and. We'll be talking about the Batley and Spen by-election. During Wednesday's select committee, Dominic Cummings' extraordinary attack on Matt Hancock had many prongs. But the one that appears to have stung the most is this. We were told categorically in March that people will be tested before they went back to care homes. We only subsequently found out that that hadn't happened. Now, all the government rhetoric was we put a shield around care homes and blah, blah, blah. It's complete nonsense. Quite the opposite of putting a shield around them. We sent people with COVID back to the care homes. So the core bit of Dominic Cummings' testimony was the idea that Matt Hancock had lied. So Matt Hancock had told the Prime Minister, had told Dominic Cummings that the care homes would be protected, people would be tested on being discharged from hospitals, and that didn't happen. Now, that's the new information. That's why I think this story has run so far when it comes to the newspapers and the media, because there is a claim and a counterclaim. Because we already knew that the government had failed to protect care homes. Much of this information was already on the public record. We knew that on the 17th of March, NHS trusts were told to expand their space for critical care by discharging patients into care homes. We also knew they were told tests were not necessary. And we knew that that advice did not change until a month later on the 16th of April. So you had a whole month in the middle of the, the biggest surge in, in the COVID crisis and people were being discharged from hospitals into care homes without being tested. 25,000 patients were discharged. That's what we knew. What Cummings added, as I've said, is he said this was essentially not because of a failure of government in general, it was because of a failure of Matt Hancock, the health secretary, to be honest. So he said Matt Hancock assured me and Boris Johnson that this would happen. It didn't. He's a liar and I'm putting my words in his mouth, but essentially he's he's got blood on his hands for those lies. Let's see how Matt Hancock responded. He did a Downing Street press briefing yesterday, and as you would expect, he pushed back against Cummings' claims. My recollection of events is that I committed to delivering that uh, testing for people going from hospital into care homes when we could do it, I then went away and built the testing capacity for all sorts of reasons and all sorts of uses, including this one, and then delivered on the commitment that I made. 
And that is a, that, that's kind of normal way of how you get things done in government. You work out what needs to happen. You commit to making it happen. You go away and deliver on that commitment. Uh, and then you can put the policy in place. Aaron, I want your opinion on this. We have two very disreputable people making a claim and a counterclaim. Dominic Cummings is saying the reason care homes were left in such a disastrously unprotected space or left to be a disastrously unprotected space was because Hancock said he would do something and then did not. Hancock says, no, I I said um, that testing would happen, but I said that that testing would happen when the capacity was there. And obviously, um, until mid-April, that capacity wasn't there. Who's lying? One of them has to be. Yeah, I think there's two things here. Firstly, it's clearly a systems failure if the Prime Minister and his chief advisor can both be sick and a policy of this magnitude can go wrong. You know, that's not just about, oh, the the the, the Secretary of State for Health is a bad person, they're incompetent, they're a liar. It, it shouldn't hinge on the, the content of Matt Hancock's character or his capacity to follow through because many, many people died as, as a result of this. So I think there's a there's a broader question there about is that even possible? I mean, you're on top of these issues far more than I am, Michael. So in terms of the civil service stepping in and so on, I find that quite hard to believe. We've not mentioned it here, but Dominic Cummings made an adjacent point, which was that Matt Hancock also basically tried to build infrastructure which met his short-term targets rather than thinking in the longer term about how we can actually respond to this uh, more more wholeheartedly. It was fundamentally a PR exercise for the Secretary of State for Health rather than solving the problem. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. I think that's, that's like I say, an adjacent question and it has to be answered. But in terms of Matt Hancock is responsible for these deaths, I, I just I, I can't accept that that's the answer because it's such a catastrophic failure of government. It has to be more than just one person. Surely there are safeguards. Surely there are firewalls. Surely there are people that feed back in real time and say, actually, we should be doing this. I mean, I was listening to BBC Radio 4 on Wednesday. This is just one story, Michael, but there are obviously thousands of stories like this. Somebody gets COVID-19 uh, in a care home. They go into hospital. They're isolated and then they're sent back to that care home. There were, I believe, 15 cases of, of, of COVID as a result of that single person. They were told they, w- they didn't need to be tested because they weren't kept in overnight. Again, just making it up as people go along. That person goes back into a care home. As a result, 10 people died. And you just think, wow. So if, if that's just a microcosm of a broader national problem, I, come on. You can't put this all on one person. As much as Matt Hancock is probably lying, as much as he should face, you know, face fury and fire and real accountability over this, I think, come on, far broader questions of of politics have to be asked here. I do also think that actually this idea to send people back into care homes without being tested, I mean, I'm not convinced that wasn't part of the plan, which was signed off by lots of people. Because if you remember in that testimony on, on Wednesday, one of the things that Dominic Cummings showed was was a whiteboard, which was when they'd sort of put their new plan B into place, it just, you know, just with a little black marker. And one of the boxes was, who don't we save? I don't think they wanted to intentionally cull people. Obviously, I'm not saying they, they wanted people to die. But I do think that in those early days of the plan, because they were so out of their depth, they had got into a frame of mind whereby... They wanted the hospitals free for younger people by any means necessary. So their big worry was that you'd have people who weren't close to the end of their life, who didn't get the care they needed because the hospitals were overwhelmed. So they said, to make sure that these people of younger age don't die, we kind of have to sacrifice the care homes. I I think that probably was one of the logics. And 
no one wants to admit it now. Because also, I, I completely agree with what you're saying there, Aaron. It, it, this isn't the case of policy isn't just set by Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings and Matt Hancock in a room. And Matt Hancock told Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings it would happen. Um, and he lied. And that's how this whole shit show happened. No, I think you would have had the involvement of of many different people in the civil service. I mean, on stage, potentially, even as well, because you have to remember, we were in a period of time when the scientists, you know, in early March were saying the best case scenario is 260,000 people die. So I, I do think it is a bit silly to put this all on Matt Hancock. Having said that, I also agree with you. He strikes me as someone who has a proclivity to lie. I mean, uh, the whole thing of Matt Hancock is he seems like a bit of a chancer, right? Someone who is very willing to bluff. We all saw him do it to us when it came to putting a protective ring around care homes, or especially when it came to the the testing targets. That's what you were referring to before, Aaron, where, where Dominic Cummings is saying he set up this infrastructure, which was just to make himself look good. I've got this 100,000 test target. We knew that that target was only met by counting tests once you'd put them out in the post, right? <laughs> Many of those tests were never done. They were never used. They were never returned, but they were counted within that target. What you'll often hear in Matt Hancock's interventions over the past couple of days is he says, look, actually, um, that target is why we managed to ramp up the test so quickly. We set an ambitious target and we met it. Maybe I fiddled the numbers, but the testing um, capacity still rose. I'll leave that for you to decide whether that's a reasonable argument. On the lying front, probably more convincing than anything Dominic Cummings could say is some documentary evidence he might be able to show. And Robert Peston had a very interesting um, report last night on this front. Um, so I'm going to go to a quote from that. Peston writes, The problem for Hancock is, I understand, that Dominic Cummings has documents showing Matt Hancock was summoned by the Prime Minister's office to 10 Downing Street on the 3rd of May for a meeting on the 4th of May to explain whether he had misled Cummings, the PM, and the then Cabinet Secretary Mark Sedwell on testing patients before discharge into care homes and also about further testing of residents and staff in care homes. A source says there was a fear in Downing Street that Mr. Hancock's negligence had killed people in care homes, a charge which the Department of Health has denied. The term negligence is used in the documents. Downing Street officials asked for information from the Department of Health to understand what had gone wrong. To me, this does seem like this could potentially be more problematic for Matt Hancock. Again, will people just essentially, you know, forgive him because it was a difficult period, you know, everything was up in the air? Or is there something in this documentary evidence which says, which suggests that he was actively dishonest and that that, that those active lies cost lives? I don't know what you think about what Pestner's intimated towards. You're saying there is some evidence here that at the time, you know, this isn't just Dominic Cummings refashioning a story in hindsight because he wants to make history look a particular way that, that vindicates himself. This was at the time... Matt Hancock was invited to a meeting because of negligence on, on his behalf. I presume the emphasis on negligence there, repeated by Peston, is talking about you know the legality of the whole thing. Look, Michael, my worry is that you, you get somebody who's set up as a fool guy, and that's kind of what Matt Hancock looks like right now. And that's not to say he didn't do things that he shouldn't have done, and that, like I say, he, he probably he already should have been fired. Labour should already be asking for his resignation, which they're not doing. But I, I just feel like at the highest levels of government, there should be more fail-safes than this. 
there are elite civil servants. You know, it may be that this extends, we've already seen, for instance, Mark Sedwell implicated in this. You know, it may be actually that much of the senior civil service seem to kind of go along with the whole herd immunity sort of hypothesis for far longer than we thought. I mean, we knew they they bought into it, but maybe that actually extended for a few days or a few weeks longer than we thought. Uh, or maybe there was a kind of grey zone where there wasn't really a plan. So I, I'm kind of, I, I'm kind of, uh, how can I put this? I'm cautious about sort of saying this is on Matt Hancock entirely and nobody else because it, it does feel like the, there could be a set of interests, Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, Rishi Sunak, Michael Gove, the civil service, higher parts of the Tory party, the media, putting this on one person. And I think that is A, not what happened and B, clearly that's that's meant to serve a, a distinct set of political interests that can't be allowed to happen. Especially in that first phase, we've been saying it for, for months on this show, and also I mean, it's not a controversial point, that in March, in that first wave, what we had was a collective failure of the state. Right. So yeah, Matt Hancock probably made some personal mistakes, potentially told some very damaging lies. But there was a big collective failure that a lot of people bear responsibility for. When it comes to the second wave, that's when one person is responsible, and that one person is Boris Johnson. I think it's still important that we're talking about the the care sector again, even if many people here are just trying to use Matt Hancock as a full guy. I think the, the fact that we are talking about the situation that care went through matters, and it is important. We are reminded of the fact that the protective shield, which we were told was being put around care homes, wasn't. Last night on Question Time, the chair of the National Care Association, Nadra Ahmed, said it was absolute rubbish that a protective shield had been put around care homes. We put social care on the altar to be slaughtered whilst we worked on the on the mantra that the NHS must be protected. And I absolutely understand why we needed the NHS to be running in the way that it was, because we didn't know what was coming around the corner. I think what we didn't know was the consequence of ignoring social care. Do you agree then with Matt Hancock's comment, again, this is another thing that's attracted some controversy, that he threw a protective shield around care homes? Absolutely not. It's absolute rubbish. There was no shield around. I think that was an utterance that came about um, in a form of embarrassment, perhaps, because nothing had been done for social care. I think that is incredibly important information. There's absolute consensus on the part of people who work in care and people who run care bodies that they were abandoned in those early months. And I do think the attempt to rewrite history from people like Matt Hancock is is offensive. And both myself and Aaron have suggested it would be wrong to just make Matt Hancock the full guy for everything. That's all the, all the catastrophes that have happened over the past 15 months. I also think it would be wrong if we had too strong a focus on that first wave, precisely because in that first wave, there was a real collective failure. Many of the mistakes were Different mistakes were to different degrees, but lots of them were understandable in the extent to which this was an unforeseen circumstance. Some of the science was wrong. There were, you know, a real collective failure, collective panic, which meant that some things were inevitably going to go wrong. Uh, I'm not convinced that what happened was because of of malice or or gross negligence. I mean, in many cases, it clearly was, but but the overall picture wasn't necessarily that. Later on in the pandemic, it 100% was. Because by the time we got to the second wave, we knew how COVID worked. The scientists um, had a very strong consensus, which is that we need to take tough early action. We can't pursue silly herd immunity policies. But what happened then was that one politician, one individually, one individual actively blocked 
the correct decisions and the correct policies taking place. That was, of course, Boris Johnson. And what I'm a bit disappointed about when it comes to the mainstream media on this is that we haven't seen those clips about Boris Johnson in the press as much as we've seen the clips about Matt Hancock. So I want to show you um, what I think is probably the most relevant part when it comes to this issue. This is Dominic Cummings describing how Johnson rejected the mainstream scientific advice in the early stages of the second wave. By this point, unfortunately, the Prime Minister was listening to various people who were saying things like, there's already herd immunity in the population, there won't be any second wave, etc, etc. So we had this meeting in the Cabinet Room Sunday evening. Patrick and Chris gave their view. Um, John, Ed, uh, sorry, um, a guy called Hennigan uh, and a woman from um, Oxford called Professor Gupta, I think it was, gave the kind of uh, don't lock down view. John Edmonds said, who was on stage, uh, surely we're going to learn the lessons of March. Um, here's what the data is going to be. You are not going to, like, the only logic of not doing, a, not doing a lockdown then will be that you're not going to do it at all. There's no way that you're going to make that decision. Um, you know, just do it now, otherwise it's all going to be worse. Prime Minister said, I'm not persuaded of that. It's a great misunderstanding people have that because it nearly killed him, therefore he must have taken it seriously. But in fact, after the first lockdown, his view was he was cross with me and for others into what he regarded as basically pushing him into the first lockdown. His argument after that happened was literally, quote, I should have been the mayor of Jaws and kept the beaches open. That's, that's what he said on many, many occasions. So he didn't think, he didn't, he didn't think in July or September, thank goodness we were pushed, you know, thank goodness we did the first lockdown, it was obviously the right thing to do, et cetera, et cetera. His argument then was, we shouldn't have done the first lockdown and I'm not going to make the same mistake again. He also essentially thought that he'd been gamed on the numbers in the first lockdown. And he thought the NHS would somehow have got through. So, I mean, what you heard there was a description of someone who is a complete lockdown sceptic crank you know someone whose blog would be in the spectator but who should be nowhere near policy making i mean obviously boris johnson is more suited to having a blog in the spectator than being prime minister but what you had there was i mean it was like julie hartley brewer style you know the the numbers had been gamed um we maybe already have herd immunity we should you know he's, he's often saying in, in in other parts of the testimony you know the cure is worse than that we don't want the cure to be worse than the disease i mean it's all exactly the same as what donald trump was saying and the practical consequences are exactly the same which is both of them for meh I, I feel better when the the very marginal scientists tell me that this is just like flu so i'm going to listen to them and i'm going to let them determine policy even though by this point the whole of sage was saying do not listen to carl hennigan and sinetra gupta by the way i do think that Cummings probably feigned forgetting their names because they're they're quite famous people at this point if you've been paying attention to, to COVID-19. I'm sure he did that as a sort of low-key par. Uh, this idea that he thought the numbers had been gamed, that's like a Julie Hartley Brewer tweet, but that was someone who was in number 10 and not only was influencing policy, but was he was the person who was blocking the scientists making policy. They're, they're trying to say, let's take tough action. He's saying, no, I think, you know, I think the numbers are being fiddled. I don't think maybe we've got herd immunity already. 
right? And you couldn't just ignore him. You couldn't just send some angry quote tweets about him because he was the person making the decisions. And that's why, you know, 100,000 people died since the summer. The consequences could not be more severe. And I mean, that's, from my perspective, why making Matt Hancock the full guy here would be particularly mistaken and a focus on those first three months would be particularly mistaken because the real criminal behavior was from Boris Johnson and it was in that second wave when we knew everything we needed to know about COVID-19. It is kind of phenomenal, isn't it, where policy is made by, you know, in a way, a sort of conspiracy theorist, right? He thinks the numbers were fiddled and he was completely oblivious to the evidence and he would only believe people who had blogs in The Spectator. I believe, Michael, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you had Sage basically, I think about September 20th, saying we need another lockdown now. You had the opposition saying that, and again, it's curious, what was the civil service saying, the senior civil service, I mean, Mark Sedwell, etc. Again, we'll find that out in the inquiry, but it, it seems kind of strange because that is meant to be the handbrake on this idiocy. You know, the prime minister, given, given our system, we don't have a presidential system, but the prime minister with a large electoral majority, if he's liked within his own party, like Thatcher in the 1980s, for instance, or Blair with Iraq war, has extraordinary power, sort of de facto presidential powers, really. One of the handbrakes on that is meant to be the civil service. So again, kind of, well, I mean, to be fair, kind of concerning. It, it, their job is supposed to be to execute the wills and desires of the prime minister. So well, they're they meant would to say, inform him. If the prime yeah. minister doesn't want a lockdown, but everyone was informing True. him. That's the whole point. You had, True. You had all of these advisors in, in the... In the testimony from Dominic Cummings, he's saying, they say, well, whose advice was he taking? He said he wasn't taking advice. So you had the chief medical officer, the chief scientific advisor, they're saying, you know, and they're part of the civil service. They're, they're the, you know, the top I job. Mean them, I mean, specifically, number 10 strategy unit, the cabinet office, you know, civil servants, at the Ministry of Health, etc. I mean, people that, again, who knows, you know, this will come out in the inquiry. Mm. People that generally but, speaking, prime ministers, they're told, you're told to listen to these people. I mean, a great example recently is what we see with Lex Greensill and David Cameron. David Cameron brings somebody in basically mm. because just purely on the say of a senior civil servant, so we're told, who's now passed away, so he can't defend himself. But that, that's meant to be the story. Perhaps, again, but like with so much in British politics, Michael, so, so much of this is about convention and the good chap theory of politics. And the second you don't have a mm. good chap in the top job, kind of goes belly up. But again, I do feel like perhaps the civil service are a bit more implicated in this than, than we think. So basically what you're, you're relaying here, Michael, and it could be correct, is that the entire state apparatus, the opposition, the advisors, the civil service, everybody gets this wrong at the beginning. Everybody. Uh, and that, I think that's clearly what happened. And that's clearly how the Tories are going to try and get out of it. But like you say, by the time of the second lockdown, everybody but the Prime Minister has changed direction. You know, I wonder how clean that break really is. There were definitely some people who didn't want a lockdown. Rishi Sunak and the Treasury didn't um, because of the economic costs of it all. Um, and I think Rishi Sunak was potentially also listening to these cranks as well. The people whose responsibility it was to give Boris Johnson scientific advice were giving him the correct scientific advice. I mean, we also know the Department of Health at this point was, you know, and, and that's the other reason why it seems potentially unfair to make Matt Hancock the full guy, because in this, in that period of time, the Department of Health was the big driver for let's take early serious action. And it was mm. Rishi Sunak in the Treasury and Boris Johnson speaking to people at the Spectator and the Telegraph who blocked that action. So I, I do think, I, I take your point that I'm sure there are failings beyond Boris Johnson, but I do think it, in that second phase, it is the personality of Boris Johnson that meant that we didn't have that lockdown. I think it, it seems quite clear that the overwhelming wealth of advice was in favour of taking tough early action, that, but that Boris Johnson was 
incredibly resistant to that. So you think on the big story of the second lockdown, which ultimately did kill, I think, the most people. So you, you pin that on Boris Johnson. I mean, that's, you know, Michael Walker. That's why we need you at the number 10 Downing Street, you know, press hustles. Because it's true. That's not the story mm. right now. But I think, you know, this, this has still got a long way to, to, to play out. And I think the worry of the worry of trying to effectively make Hancock the fool guy so early on is that come the inquiry, you've got nobody left. And of course, again, you know, Cummings was saying this quite early on in his testimony. They were very happy for Hancock to stay in the room because they wanted the full guy come the inquiry. Uh, but like you say, when it comes to the second lockdown, it's it's hard to see how Johnson gets out of this unless some civil servants can be implicated or like you say, the Treasury. A again, that presents problems to the Tories because then who's who's your successor? But Sunak is also up to his neck in this. Uh, we'll, we'll see if he gets the, the scrutiny from the media that deserves. I mean, Cummings', Cummings line on what Sunak was quite interesting. So he was saying, he was pushed on this because obviously everyone in the room knew that Sunak has been widely reported to be against a lockdown. Cummings' line there was he was saying, well, there's not a plan, so let's not have a lockdown without a plan. But that was precisely the argument that Cummings was saying was silly when the scientists were saying it originally, you know, because we haven't modelled for a lockdown, we shouldn't do a lockdown. <laughs> you know, Later on, Sunak is saying, because you haven't planned for a lockdown, let's not do a lockdown. You know, he, he's, he's up to his neck in this shit. We are three and a half weeks away from the date which was slated to be the end of all COVID restrictions. However, there are increasing concerns that the B16172 variant of coronavirus, which is more transmissible than the Kent strain, could knock that schedule off course. Now, there are a great set of graphics from the Financial Times explaining, I mean, why we should be a little bit worried um, about this variant, because it is spreading at you know, quite a pace. And we can see it's massively outcompeting the existing strains. Many of the places that are the current hotspots with the so-called Indian variant, the Kent strain is declining. Remember, the Kent strain was already a lot more transmissible than the original strain. And then the new Indian variant strains are dramatically increasing. Um, and in Bolton, I mean, you can see they've, they've just completely rocketed. So cases were 50 for every 100,000 people. They've gone right up to 400 for every 100,000 people. Um, so it's 0.5% of the population testing positive, essentially. And that's all, or nearly all, um, from that new strain. So we can see how much more transmissible it is, how big a problem this would cause. And remember, you know, Remember when the, the Kent strain first started spreading and cases were rocketing. They went up to 60,000 a day. And that was because we were like, oh, it's because we've got this new transmissible strain. This is even more transmissible. But, um, of course, there are some reasons to be cheerful. And that's because in this country, the vaccine rollout has gone very well. And while these new cases are you know, rising at a fairly worrying pace, they aren't doing so among the oldest among us. Um, so on the left here is the age range um, of people who are testing positive for COVID-19 in Bolton. You can see there's been a real spike um, among younger people. Um, so people aged 5 to 24, almost 1% of people essentially um, have tested positive. But when you get down to people who are 60 plus, very, very low, hasn't surged at all, has barely risen. So cases rocketing, but not really among the parts of the population most likely to die from COVID-19. Of course, that doesn't mean everything's okay because, you know, it, it's not only old people that die from COVID-19 and dying from COVID-19 isn't the only bad thing that can happen. And hospital admissions have been rising for the first time in months. 
and they've risen by 20% across the UK in the last week, um, which is worrying. I mean, if you look, look at these graphs, you can see that from January onwards, daily admissions are steadily, steadily, steadily falling, and that has just reversed. Now, that will be partly because um, of this new strain, partly, I presume, and because of the relaxation of lockdown rules. Um, again, we think those admissions might not translate into deaths because they are generally generally younger people. And this is a very interesting graph showing us the breakdown of inpatients depending on, on their age group in the autumn wave and in the current wave. The bulk of people um, in the autumn wave in hospital were between 65 and 84. Now, the majority of people in hospital are between 18 and 64. So, Essentially, we know they're going to be they're less likely to die, but lots of young people going into hospital, not a good thing. Um, the two big policy questions from this are, should we now pause the great unlocking on the 21st of June? Should we potentially keep some restrictions in place or put that unlocking back a few weeks so that we've got more people vaccinating? That's a big policy question. There's also the question of, I suppose, personal behavior. And what, what I personally take away from this is I think I haven't had COVID-19 yet. And I'm going to get vaccinated on the 8th of June. And all of this makes me think I'm probably not going to socialize indoors until then. Because whilst we're not going to have a scene like we had in January, we aren't going to see bodies piling up in the same way we did then because so many of the vulnerable population are, are vaccinated. It does look like potentially over the next month, quite a lot of unvaccinated people are going to catch COVID-19. I'm currently still unvaccinated. I'd prefer for that not to happen. There also are, I, I do think we should be considering pausing the, the great un unlocking because given the pace of vaccinations, we will be in a much stronger position in quite a short period of time. I don't see why we wouldn't just wait that extra free weeks. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this briefly. Do you think we should go ahead with the the big unlocking on the 21st of June or do you think we should delay it a little bit? I don't think it really matters that much. I mean, I think it's pretty wise to delay it, um, see how things go. But I think, you know, in a week in a week's time, we're going to have a, a better idea um, of where we are right now. I think today we had 10, 10 people have died within 28 days of a positive test. And I think we had four and a half thousand new cases and the majority of which are, are this Indian variant. And people then, they see that and they reply and they say, oh, we're going to have another lockdown. Here we go again. And that's just a recency bias. And like you say, no, we're not We're not going to see what happened in, in, in Christmas or over Christmas or last year because of the vaccination. And 4,500 cases you know, has to be seen in the context of opening things up again. You know, there was clearly going to be an increase in the number of cases purely by virtue of the fact people aren't all stuck indoors. And we have opened up to an extraordinary extent right? Schools, universities, people being encouraged to go back to work, now pubs, restaurants, and so on. So I think if you look at, for instance, schools and universities being shut over the summer, that's clearly going to help. I think the major concern is what's the state of play come, you know, next October, November. And I think by then, I think it looks almost certain the entire population will have had two doses and will have boosters as well. That's the, the main thing. And we're also going to have to get used now to the fact that this is here forever, you know, COVID-19 and multiple variants are now here. They will sadly take people's lives as flu does, as a range of viruses and pathogens do already. It's not wise necessarily to focus on, oh, we've got four and a half thousand cases today. 
without also saying, well, how many cases of flu do we have active in the human population right now in the UK, right? That, that's the main thing. And so I think, yes, maybe push it back, be wise. And like you say, Michael, I think for people who haven't been vaccinated, very sensible to continue to take precautions. I think we all should, frankly, but I think particularly for people who've not been vaccinated. But I, I really would push back on these, these, you know, these claims that, oh, we need to have another lockdown. Here we go again. A, that's not going to happen. But also B, you know, we now need to kind of understand the new reality of this this thing being with us. You know, COVID-19 is now part of cold and flu season, right? Probably for the rest of our lives. And that's that's obviously not a good thing, but we need to get used to it. We do. I, I mean, I agree with everything you've said there. I, I suppose what I'd just add and emphasize is that we are in a fundamentally different situation now than we will be in three months' time or a year's time. Because whilst... Yes, we shouldn't close nightclubs because, you know, forever because there's some risk of COVID-19. It, it just so happens that right now we have a huge proportion of the population not vaccinated. In about a month or two months, we're going to have, you know, almost all of the adult population basically immune from this virus. So, so it does seem to me as in why not do the whole mass immunity thing before we do the unlocking, you know, considering there's about a month in it, it makes sense to me that you do them in the order where you say, let's all get vaccinated before we open everything instead of saying, let's open everything. And, but don't worry, because we're all going to be vaccinated soon. It, it seems to me that it's, it's, it's about an order, not a, how should we live for the rest of our lives, but we won't dwell on this. This will definitely be a story, which we are talking about over the coming weeks. Um, because as, as Aaron says, we will be getting more information about this. We're going to go back to that testimony now. Throughout the pandemic, we've often complained that the BBC's political editor is too interested in amplifying the claims of the Prime Minister and his advisers and not interested enough in holding the Prime Minister to account. Now, many saw confirmation of Laura Koonsberg's cosiness with Downing Street in this claim made by Dominic Cummings. I was working, say, roughly 100-hour weeks. Of that time, less than an hour a week, for sure, less than 1%, much less than 1% was spent talking was spent talking to the media. I did occasionally talk to people. The main person, really, though, that I spoke to in the whole of 2020 was Laura Koonsberg at the BBC, because the BBC has a special position in the country, obviously, during a crisis. That comment obviously set Twitter alight when Dominic Cummings name-checked Laura Koonsberg in his evidence to that Commons Select Committee. Do you think that puts her in a difficult position at all? Hugely. Hugely. Before I say that, Michael, I just want to say, you know, if he's working 100 hours a week, Dominic Cummings, that means he's working six days a week, 17 hours a day. Uh, and no wonder he was making such catastrophically bad decisions. And if that was the modus operandi for the, for, the, for, the, for the people advising Boris Johnson, for the Prime Minister himself, which I don't believe it is, by the way, I don't believe Boris Johnson works 100 hours a week. And if that was the modus operandi for the cabinet, no wonder they made all these mistakes and errors and they've had to subsequently lie and misrepresent what happened. God, you can't organise things. You can't run things properly if you're, if you're working like that. Yeah, you can do that for a week. You can't do that for months on end. It's not just about your mental health or, you know, about looking after yourself. You're... you're 
you're making really important decisions. You, you can't be sleep deprived like that. Going to, to Laura Koonsberg, which was your question, I think she has major problems, Michael, because, you know, we, we and the great thing is with Twitter, this is all publicly documented. And if you look, for instance, when the Dominic Cummings story broke about him going to Barnard Castle, she was replying to people. She was literally the reply guy to people saying X, Y, Z about Dominic Cummings. And she was saying, a source tells me, actually, that's not what happened. This happened instead. Now, now, if in rebutting other journalists' stories using a single source, and that source was Dominic Cummings, she should absolutely be fired from the BBC as chief political editor. She should absolutely not have that job, Michael, because that is not journalism. She was rebutting a story about the Prime Minister's chief advisor using nothing but the testimony of said advisor. Come on. I mean, somebody who's doing just a, you know, a journalism A-level knows that's not how you behave. And I seriously think 99% of BBC employees know that. Uh, they, they know that's not appropriate. So for the political editor to be, to be doing that, I think that's a really serious problem. Now, we don't know that for sure. Maybe the source wasn't Dominic Cummings. But given he's saying that the only person I spoke to in the sort of media core was Laura Koonsberg, I think she should be asked questions about that. I think if there is an inquiry, it should also extend to the relationship between the media uh, and, and number 10 and the people around number 10. That includes, of course, most prominently Laura Coonsberg, but also Robert Peston. Because in questions of political communications in a moment of crisis, but also in terms of actually holding politicians and their advisors accountable, a clear failure has happened here. But I, I never thought it would be as bad as that, Michael. I never thought it would be, be as bad as that. And Dominic Cummings isn't, isn't daft. You know, he knows he's implicated her there and he's caused problems for her there. So I, I think he... He's probably cognizant of the fact there are going to be consequences. But like I say, if, if, if that is the case, she has to go. She has to go. She should resign. Of course, she won't resign. She should be fired. But of course, the BBC won't fire her. I personally think Laura Koonsberg is amongst the worst journalists at the BBC. So heaven knows how she's one of the most senior people there. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense to me. Let's get up those tweets you're talking about when it comes to her being the reply guy. Um, so this famously involved Dominic Cummings breaking lockdown rules to go to Durham. Um, so let's get up the, the tweet from Pippa Crua from The Mirror. So she does the original tweet. Boris Johnson's top aide, Dominic Cummings, was investigated by police after breaking the government's own coronavirus lockdown rules. It was a huge story, um, you know, completely broke the internet. Laura Koonsberg comes in to reply to Pippa Crua saying, source says his trip was within guidelines as Cummings went to stay with his parents so they could help with childcare while he and his wife were ill. They insist no breach of lockdown. Now, I think regardless of what Dominic Cummings said, that was an incredibly misjudged tweet from Laura Koonsberg. I also do think she has a tendency um, to just parrot whatever a source tells her and not you know, do any really real critical analysis. I mean, some of the documentaries you see, the Brexit documentaries, so she's talking about Boris Johnson. He just wants to be loved. You know, it's all kind of in love with these characters she's reporting on, unless they're Jeremy Corbyn, of course. And I do think that makes uh, an, an exceptionally uncritical journalist. To focus, though, on precisely what was said in that testimony, because I'd push back at you slightly, Aaron, because I think probably what Dominic Cummings has said doesn't really implicate her because it's never a secret that advisors speak to journalists. Rob Burley, who was head of political programming at the BBC until a few weeks ago, um, tweeted something to a similar effect. 
um, when Twitter was popping off about this. So he tweeted, if Laura Koonsberg wasn't talking regularly to Cummings while he was in number 10, there'd be a problem. It's literally her job to talk to and assess the veracity of such sources to keep the public informed. And so I suppose what I'd put to you, Aaron, is, I mean, I, I think the problem with Koonsberg is that she doesn't assess the veracity of those sources. She often just repeats them. Source mm. says this, source says that. And yeah. she doesn't either give us the information we need to judge whether or not that source was biased or had a conflict of interest, etc. I don't think she does that. I don't think she's a particularly good journalist. But I don't think the fact that Dominic Cummings said, I speak to Laura Koonsberg, is bad for Laura Koonsberg because we, you know, that that's that's not, that's supposed to happen. So let me rephrase this. There is no issue with Dominic Cummings in abstract speaking to Laura Koonsberg. The issue is we know he we now know he spoke to her and we know what she wrote at the time. And that's the problem. So if we can just pull that tweet back up again, Michael, if we can just get that thing that Rob, the Rob Burley, Burley one or the yeah, please Rob, the Rob Burley tweet. Let's go over this. If BBC Laura Kay wasn't talking regularly to Cummings while he was number ten, there'd be a problem. I agree. It's literally her job to talk to and assess the veracity of such sources to keep the public informed. She was misinforming the public, Michael. There was a claim made by Pippa Crera, well-evidenced, well-sourced, multiple sources, which was a serious bad news story for the government. And Laura Koonsberg is saying that's not true, right? That's not true on the basis of a single source. That's not true, but... Okay, she's questioning the veracity. We can look at her phrasing again, Michael, but it wasn't really, it was pretty certain. She's questioning the veracity of that story, well-sourced story, on the basis of one source, who's a person mentioned in, that mentioned in that story, Michael. So no, I don't think she was in any way doing her job. I think Rob Burley's living in cloud cuckoo land. You know, if, if that's what he thinks, if he thinks that's acceptable, particularly, by the, by the way, if that is, if her source was... Dominic Cummings. It's completely unacceptable. He doesn't know what he's talking about. No wonder the BBC's in the state it is if you've got Rob Burley saying that that's permissible. It's clearly not. It is clearly not. The BBC style guide for a very long time, I say this time after time, you were meant to have in a story two separate sources corroborating the story unless it's Associated Press or Reuters. Except your Laura Koonsberg, when it's your Twitter feed, then in, in that case it's okay if you just have Dominic Cummings saying something. Come on. Let's get, out, let's get up that tweet again from Laura Koonsberg. Source says his trip was within guidelines as Cummings went to stay with his parents so they could help with childcare, blah, 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 blah. I mean, in her defence, again, I think that was a stupid tweet. I don't think her reporting is very good, but it, it's, you need two sources to say something's the case. You don't need two sources to say source says. She's being explicit with what she's doing. They insist I suppose you could say, if, if it's Cummings, she should say it's Cummings, because yeah. source says his trip. Who's the his there? Is the his the source? They, Is the they his insist. Cummings? Are they the same person? But precisely. They insist no breach of lockdown. They insist. Come on, Michael. Come on. Come on. And a Rob Burley, I don't no, think it's a good tweet. I'll just say. No, no. You, you know, technically, I think you're right. You're absolutely right, because she's not saying it didn't happen. She's saying sources. But come on, Michael. If, it, if, it, if you're relying on a single, if it was somebody other than Dominic Cummings and she wrote that, I would agree with you. But the question is, she's talking about this third person who's bringing into question the veracity of this, this account of multiple people, which we now know happened, right? Um, if people can talk, talk, talk about, you know, multiple people saw the guy. I think the, the, the consensus was, even though he was kind of let off the hook, that he, he didn't go up there for the reasons he said, and he did lots of things wrong, such as traveling across the country when he thought he was sick, getting out of the car multiple times when he thought he may have coronavirus. Anyway, 
I, I think, it, Michael, it does hinge on to, if you have a BBC political editor rebutting a story about the chief political advisor for the prime minister, she says, source says, one source, and the source is the person who's the story, she has to resign. She has to resign. Come on. Because that, that is so bad. That is so bad. What else is happening here, Michael? You know, we saw it with the, the election coverage when there was apparently a Labour activist assaulted Matt Hancock's advisor. We knew that was rubbish. We only knew that was rubbish because there was a video, right? How many of these stories are there, Michael? And again, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're the Daily Mirror political editor or if you present Newsnight. Okay. She is the BBC's most senior political editor. It's a huge job, and she falls so far short so frequently. I, I can't understand how anybody could defend her. Rob Burley, I mean, he was working for the BBC. He's paid to defend her, sure. But uh, any reasonable person looking at, at this who's grasping the facts, being honest, come on. And, and by the way, she's had that job since 2010. And I can be quite honest here, BBC politics coverage since 2010 has been increasingly dire. You know, Coonsbergification. You just look at the whole thing, whether it's Brexit, whether it's Johnson, whether it's austerity. Were people really in receipt of the facts? Were they being informed? No. Like you say, she just sees it as some kind of personality play, some drama, between ultimately some quite boring, wet, affluent, privileged people. That's not what politics journalism is meant to be about, Michael. I mean, we agree on all of that. I mean, as I've talked about on many shows before, I suppose what I'm pushing back on is how relevant Cummings testimony was because i do think the only thing he said is something we already knew and the only thing he said is also something that's not that problematic what's problematic is what she did with the messages not that he was messaging her in the first place let's move on to our last story a date has been set for the by-election that could decide keir starmer's future batley and spen will go to the polls on the 1st of July, there is a by-election there because the incumbent MP for the constituency, Tracy Brabin, um, is moving on to become the West Yorkshire mayor. This contest could be a big challenge for the party. They only won by a narrow margin in 2019. Tracy Brabin won, um, but with only 42.7% of the vote, you can see the Conservatives were on 36 percent. There's only a sort of three and a half thousand majority for the Labour Party. Slightly different dynamic to in Hartlepool because the Brexit party didn't get much in this constituency. They only got 3.2 percent. But you have a, a wild card, which is the heavy woolen district independence, um, whose candidate was Paul Halloran. They got 12.2 percent. So it'll be interesting where those votes go. Um, now, the heavy woolen district independence, they do have some crossover with UKIP, some of the same personnel. Um, so it's quite possible they have a, a similar voter base. But you know, it'll be interesting to see where they go. It's not, not as obvious um, as when it comes to the Brexit party. The obvious comparison here, as I've already um, intimated, is Hartley Paul. That was um, the by-election that Labour lost you know, to catastrophically um, really earlier this month. Now, it's similar in the sense that it's you know a traditionally Labour vote in place and it did vote for Brexit. At the same time, it didn't vote for Brexit to quite the same degree that Hartlepool did. So in Hartlepool, there was 70% leave in Batley and Spen. And we think about 60% leave. I say we think because the boundaries of the EU referendum weren't on this constituency. But that seems to be the best estimate that it was about 60%. So Brexit, but not as Brexit. Another difference with Hartlepool is that it also has a much larger ethnic minority population that should be um, more favourable to Labour. It also includes a large Muslim 
community. Um, now, that is why one particular candidate seems to think he can go into the constituency and cause an upset. That's George Galloway. He will be standing, I think, as an independent. And this is a video of his launch. The political class here has taken the voters that I see around me entirely for granted. They assume that you're a vote bank, that you'll vote for them whatever they do or more often whatever they do not do. They know the things that matter to you, but they don't care. For example, during Gaza, you were crying. They were supporting Israel in the bombardment. The leader of the Labour Party, against whom I'm standing here, doesn't matter who else is on the ballot paper, I'm standing against Keir Starmer. Why? Because Keir Starmer has made it clear, let's be fair, he's been honest. He said, I am a Zionist without equivocation. The meaning of equivocation is unconditional. He unconditionally supports Israel. Well, I unconditionally support the Palestinians. And I have been doing so for 50 years. Not yesterday or last week, but for 50 years. Years. I unconditionally, without equivocation, support the right of the Palestinian people to be free. And I think there are thousands of people in Batley and Spen who agree with me on that. George Galloway trying to make Palestine a big issue in this election. Labour have been fairly weak on it. He's saying... You know, I I, I, can, I unconditionally stand with the, the Palestinians, what presumably lots of people um, in the constituency will like to hear. Um, Aaron, he has caused massive upsets before. He has beaten Labour um, in constituencies with large Muslim populations. This time around, I think it's unlikely he'd, he'd win. Um, but the way he's sort of pitching himself against Keir Starmer, I think he's trying to help Labour lose, essentially. Do you think he could manage that? Let's look at this kind of... As a, as a sequence of, of what he's got going for him and against him. First, it's only a month long, which is a problem for him. You know, he, he, he can't win in a month. No, he can't. Secondly, you've got COVID. So the extent that he can have rallies, hustings, you know, if there are hustings indoors, multiple hustings, he's going to clearly cause major problems for Labour. If we were having this like with Hartlepool, less so, right? Because people are going to hear less from him. So I think there's a lot of kind of moving parts here. I think in 2017, you know, he only got two and a half thousand votes in Manchester Gorton in a by-election. But two and a half thousand votes here, which I think would be the baseline, sort of that's the bottom, I think, here, would be enough probably to really screw Labour. You know, three and a half thousand majority. You've got, like you say, these independents who are kind of quite far to the right. You've got the Brexit issue and so on. I think if he gets two and a half thousand, then Labour lo lose this. And you, and like you say, Michael, you know, people say, oh, well, he got 20,000 votes in Scotland or whatever. George Galloway's forte is foreign policy in the Middle East. He won 2005 Burn Bethnal Green as a respect candidate, Michael. He beat Labour and Burn Bethnal Green as a, as a respect candidate. During that campaign, Michael, he went to Bangladesh, right? He didn't just campaign in Tower Hamlets. He literally went to Bangladesh campaigning, 
right? I mean, it's just unbelievable. And then in Bradford, in Bradford West, I believe, um, what year was that? 20, it wasn't 2014, was it 20? Anyway, Bradford West before 2015, when he lost to Naz Shah. By the way, when he lost to Naz Shah, he still got eight and a half thousand votes. He's beaten Labour twice, running as a respect candidate, running as somebody who's very principled on foreign policy. And, and to be fair to him, the only thing he's ever been consistent on is, is foreign policy stuff. You know, so he said horrific things about, for instance, Naz Shah. Uh, he said some really, really bad things about many people he's run against. His views on the union, his kind of tilts the right on cultural issues recently is kind of odd. He's, he's a political narcissist. But he's very good at this, Michael. And uh, what we just saw there was George Galloway at his launch. Uh, and actually, there was a photo going around of Kim Ledbetter, who's the Labour candidate. She actually went to the same place. Uh, but the people, they were wearing the Palestine T-shirts. The difference is those people wearing the Palestine T-shirts uh, had sort of vote George Galloway when he was there. So we can already see he's getting endorsements from people that Kim, Led Kim Ledbetter's not getting. A short campaign also doesn't suit Labour necessarily because they're meant to have this ground campaign, although clearly under Keir Starmer that's gone. So I think the shorter campaign, the presence of George Galloway, I think the weakness nationally of Keir Starmer, I think Labour loses by a couple of thousand. That may change, right? That may change. Kim Ledbetter as a candidate was a Hail Mary of a candidate. They rarely work. They very rarely work. And actually, I think that, that demonstrates Labour's desperation here, uh, but they can work. So we'll see. But I, I think she has big problems and I think she'll lose. And the question is, if she does lose, what happens to Keir Starmer? I mean, it probably is worth emphasising for the record that while on the face of it, George Galloway standing against Keir Starmer for being unprincipled on the Israel-Palestine conflict, that might seem fair enough on some level. He's also has a history of being a very unpleasant person very recently. I mean, especially very recently when he was running against Naz Shah. He, she has a, you know, part of her backstory is that she was in a forced marriage and suffered abusive in that marriage. He, you know, brought loads of, he, he said she was basically lying about all of that, giving quotes to newspapers saying the ex-abusive husband has denied being abusive. You know, real, real nasty campaigning. Um, so I'm, 100% not backing Galloway in this constituency. But at the same time, he is exploiting weaknesses that I think, you know, Keir Starmer has, has brought upon himself to some degree. Um, also in the constituency, someone who I think will be much less of a threat to anyone um, is Lawrence Fox. Um, it's unlikely he'll be standing, but he is pictured here with Paul Halloran. So he is the, the candidate who I explained to you earlier came third um, last time around with the heavy woolen district independence. You've got 6,400 votes. Um, I presume probably Lawrence Fox wants him to stand for his the Reclaim Party. But I would have thought that Paul Halloran will say that actually I can do much better as a as a local independent than with your party that has, you know, no supporters. So I, I think George Galloway is probably going to be able to amass um, more of a following than Lawrence Fox in that constituency. Quick fire round. Will Labour win or lose this constituency? And will Keir Starmer go? We'll see. I think I think they'll lose it. The question is how badly. If they lose it like Hartlepool, seven, eight thousand votes, which I, I can't foresee. If they lose that, he has to go. And he he will go. And from what I what I'm told by sources is in the last couple of weeks, really, in the last week, the Labour rights losing confidence with with Keir Starmer too. That includes bureaucrats, that includes people on the NEC, that includes MPs. They're not defending him anymore. Uh, and I think they don't want to be associated with somebody who goes down really badly. And it looks like they may go down really badly and badly and spend. 
Aaron, it's been a pleasure as always spending my Friday evening with you. It's been my pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. And Batley and Spen is going to be an amazing story for us to cover. And I can't wait to go up there. Thank you for watching. We'll be back on Monday. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.